0: Isn't it an amazing thing that we have as believers that we have a very personal God and uh, He invests Himself in our lives and He has invested greatly and in has sacrificed for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to be continuing being a Word-filled teacher or being a Bible-filled teacher uh, coming from the, the opening passage of Scripture. will be Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. It comes from the material changed into His image by a Jim Berg. And um, Deuteronomy Chapter six, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me there deuteronomy chapter six uh, and we 'll read verses six and seven. We are living in times and have for many, many years uh, where uh, there is an absence of truth. This actually will be a message i 'm looking to do on Sunday morning on truth, but Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Here is Moses' admonition to the children of Israel to take God's word and make them a part of everyday life. I mean, when they're talking about sitting, standing, talking, walking, rising up, God's Word penetrates our very thoughts in our lives. And we're going to talk about that uh, further this evening. Let's go to the Lord and ask for His blessing, and then we'll commence our study. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this day. I thank You for Your marvelous Word. Father, I need Your help this evening. Lord, I need Your strength. And Father, I pray for those this evening. Lord, I pray this would be a time of refreshment. God, I pray it would be a time of uh, encouragement and challenge. Lord, that we would be word-filled disciples. And so, Lord, I yield all of this to Thee. I need Your help and Your strength. And should there be someone here that has never accepted Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior and repented of their sins, Father, I pray that tonight, They would call out to you to ask you to forgive them of their sins and be their Savior. And so, Father, all that will go forth, we commit into thy care. We love you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Being a world-filled teacher, let me go back here. Going a little bit beyond. God's concern is not just that we teach... Uh, God's concern is not just that we're a living example, but that we are filled uh, with the Word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, as it says up there, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, a word meaning mature, truly furnished into all good works." And Paul understood... He's obviously speaking to Timothy, a letter to him under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Timothy had been taught by his godly mother and grandmother. His dad was not uh, of the faith, and so he had strong mother and grandmother. They would teach him the truths, and Paul warns Timothy here in First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, uh, about, well, he obviously is addressing Titus for the book of Titus, but nevertheless, in the pastoral epistles, uh, there's an admonition that there are Uh, grievous wolves, there are false teachers, evil men, seducers, as we see in chapter 3, verse 13. Timothy needs to maintain and remain assured in the truth that he has, Uh, be protected against faulty and false error. And so to bolster and increase Timothy's assurance and his confidence, he reminds him of the scriptures having a particular nature to him. And obviously, as we see in the scripture here, uh, we find that it tells us, uh, given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. The word doctrine here teaches us what is wrong with us, or excuse me, teaches us what is right for us. Doctrine is a way to live. It teaches us, it says for reproof, it teaches us what is wrong with us, why I'm doing what I'm doing, how to make it right in correction, as well as how to keep it right for instruction and righteousness. So that is the position of the Word of God, the functions of God's Word. It tells us what is right for us, what is wrong with us, how to make it right, and how to keep it right, how to stay on the straight and narrow. And so That's God's Word for us as we look at it. We looked at these truths last time, and I'll put these all up here. And, uh, you know, today's religious climate is quite diverse. Um, and there's a big push, obviously, for unity amongst churches. But, obviously, the question is, you know, today, many times, a test of faith is, do you love Jesus? But the question is, you know, you're going to say, which Jesus, right? Because there are false apostles and and prophets out there who transform themselves into the apostles of Christ, or transform themselves into teachers of righteousness, when in fact they're quite contrary to that. And it was, in fact, through 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we learn that Satan, through the Uh, subtlety, he came to deceive Eve's mind. So doctrine is absolutely important for us, because as we looked at before in the previous slide, doctrine teaches us what is right for us. But if your doctrine of what is right for us is not correct, or is not biblical, then I am to have nothing to do with it. Because false doctrine will lead you in the wrong direction. The Scriptures are inspired. They're not from some uh, myth. They're not from some man-made philosophy. God inspired them by His Holy Spirit working through men to write down the words that He wanted. They're infallible in the fact that God breathed them. And he is omniscient. The word omniscient is all-knowing. Omni-science. All-knowing. So he's not ignorant of anything. He's infallible and he's given us everything that you and I need for life. Additionally, the scriptures are authoritative. There was a gentleman, Dr. Bob Jones Sr. says, whatever the Bible says is so. And to that you would say a hearty amen. It tells us how to live on this earth with a sense of well-being, how to live with contentment, how to live in peace and joy, the Bible does. It gives us, it covers all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So there's an authority that I need to follow God's Word. The problem is, is that when we attempt to help others with God's Word, sometimes we're at a loss of where to go, how to do, how what to say. You might be asking someone, and I remember much to my chagrin, uh, that I would have the idea, you know, um, for salvation. I got to the place and I'm like, if I ever got to salvation, I don't know if I could explain it to someone. Could you sit down from the Bible, have some memory verses on hand to lead someone to know how they need Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior? And the problem is, is, I mean, that's the most essential, basic thing, right? We can give them our testimony about Jesus Christ saved us, but then you come to the Scriptures and say, you know, for God so loved the world. And, uh, you know, all you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's several verses, but, you know, we need to be word-filled teachers, word-filled disciples. It is not just the pastor's responsibility. It is every Christian who professes the name of Jesus Christ to be a word-filled disciple. Because we live in a world of hurt. We live in perilous times. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. A little bit of review from last week. That's why I'm going over it a little bit quicker than I normally would for those who may not have been here last week. But 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. There in the second pastoral epistle. And it says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. So we understand in perilous times, the word perilous here as the idea of hurt or danger. And there are individuals with which we interact who have great emotional and spiritual baggage. How do we address the hurt? How do I address pain? How do I, is God silent about how I deal with this? Rather than having to go to secular psychology, which has the worldview of atheism, or uh, at least at best, nos- or, uh, 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 <laughs> I'm drawing a blank, but anyways, uh, agnostic, as agnostic, which is like, well, there might be a God, but we don't know. So they're starting with the idea that man has some inherent intrinsic knowledge, but we need to understand that the Bible is the authority and it has the answers for life. Do we turn to drugs or other things to alter the moods? Do we turn to Eastern religions and yoga and other things to help calm troubled souls? Do we look deep within ourselves to find it? The thing is, is the Bible tells us what is correct for us, and that's doctrine. Do you realize something amazing? And I like what this author's going through is studying this material, but God is the expert at addressing pain. The Old Testament scriptures were written about the Israelites who were slaves. Don't you think they had some pain and hurt? What about the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the, the Philistines who would hurt the Israelites? What about Joseph in Great Herd? His brothers. What about the New Testament Gospels? John the Baptist having his head cut off, Stephen being stoned, Paul being burned, uh, you know, put in boiling water, a uh, boiling oil, uh, uh, stoned, you know, left for dead. Don't you think that's any pain there? Uh, There's also the, the epistles; these letters are written to congregations many times who would have slaves in them. And they were owned by evil masters. You also think about the persecution that occurred there in the first century church. The Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, and while he was called Saul, he would take away believers and kill them. Some were denied land. Some were denied jobs. Some were denied status. Families ripped apart. I mean, just read Hebrews chapter 11. The Bible is written to people in pain. But God uses these times of great pain to refine our souls and prepare us for the day when I'm going to stand before Him. Because at the end of my life, every believer will one day stand at the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to have to give a a reckoning of how they live their life. Judgment Seat of Christ is only for Christians, but it's going to be with how you lived your life for Jesus Christ. You'll gain or lose rewards based upon how you've lived your life. How do we deal with pain? Peter tells us to grow out of it. In the pain, we grow. Much like you would uh, in a gym, you're going to lift a lot of weights, and as you're lifting weights, your muscles, like the next day or the next couple days, you're like, oh, I can hardly move, but you're gaining muscle mass. So as I'm in that pain, I'm increasing my intake of God's word, not fashioning ourselves to the former lust and ignorance. 1 Peter 1.14, a portion of that verse. So I'm not fashioning myself according to culture. I'm letting the word of God be my model and mold for how I live my life. As I spoke about on Sunday, I think it was Sunday. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. No, it wasn't. It was, maybe it was a message I listened to. But anyways, desiring the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. During times of increasing affliction, we need to have a desire for God's Word. And that was two, Sundays, two Sunday night, nights ago. But there needs to be, as this pain comes, what ought it to do? It ought to drive me to the book. So when I'm giving instruction to someone about their life, about some pain in their life, about some struggles. If I give of my own philosophy, my own thinking, then I don't have the eternal knowledge of God. The best thing I can do when I sit down with someone, and we've done counseling with people before, and when I sit down with them, what do I do? I open God's Word and I say, here's what God's Word says. And sometimes there, there can be conflict going on and in this time where my wife and I would meet with some individuals and, and they might be yelling and screaming at each other and we're like, whoa, 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 you know. And uh, bring out God's Word and say, what does God say? The Bible is not a supplement. It is our book we use. It is the answer. Because the eternal God who made you and he made me, he's given us. 2 Timothy 3.17, look with me here. And we looked at verse 16 earlier, and I believe we looked at 17. But what is the purpose when we look to God's word? The Bible is our answer, verse 17. Verse 16 says, all scripture. And then it says, verse 17... What it does, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. You will have everything you need to do good works for the Lord. Oftentimes, the problem is we don't know him. And we don't know his word. So we need to be word-filled teachers. It's not what so-and-so said. It's not what somebody else thinks. It's not what I think. It's what does God think. And it also gives all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what you need for now, and in your position with God, for your relationship with Him. That's what the Bible does for me. Picking up where we left off, here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, word-filled teachers need to know what the Bible says about how to reprove others who are not right. to come up to someone and address them and let them know they're not going in the right direction. You'll oftentimes get sometimes within Christianity, "Don't judge me. Who are you to tell me what to do?" And and there is a fashion with which to do it. But we are prone to go our own way. We are prone to look in the wrong direction. Look with me though, at 2 Timothy chapter 4 uh, verse 2 Timothy chapter four verse two. It says, "Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. What does it say here? The next word, reprove." Second Timothy four two, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So it tells us, long suffering is able to bear up under. You know what? Sometimes you might say something to someone, and they certainly don't like you. So there's a patience with all long-suffering and doctrine. So there is a right way to live life. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. You have these big-name churches, these large churches with big bands, and, and they're hip, and they're in style. And they're current. But the problem is they don't ever deal with sin. They might make you feel good when you're there, but they don't deal with doctrine. What does God think about how you're living your life? So when you confront someone, it takes a prayerful self-examination. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7. I'm amazed. I've had some interactions with some individuals who are new evangelical, and uh, in their life and and just some mannerisms. I mean, in a day and age with the legalization of marijuana, and you know these some of these new evangelicals are like it's totally okay. They're totally okay with. Uh, alcohol, and, and cannabis, and, and immorality, and all this stuff. Well, we love one another. Well, what does God think? Look with me at verse 3 of Matthew chapter 7. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shall... Which thou, thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So there has to be a careful self-examination. There needs to be an understanding. Listen, I need to go to God and say, God, is there any sin in my life? Now, just because you're going to them and you're addressing an issue, there is a judgment that you've made. There is an assessment you've made towards that individual's uh, behavior that is not commensurate with a, being a, a believer with one who loves Jesus. So there is a judgment that you're making. So before I'm doing that, I'm coming to look at myself. Now, am I without fault? No, we all have our areas. But it ought to be, there ought not to be anything glaring in my life. You know, and it could be an individual that, you know, maybe uh, in their interactions with those in public, that, uh, you know, maybe they're a swindler or, uh, you know, and and then yet they're telling you that you shouldn't be drinking, and yet in their own life, they're swindling people out of money, you know, they're underhanded in whatever they do, well, you're going to say, okay, you got some, you know, if you're a liar, but yet you're trying to tell someone, you know, you need to be, you know, treat people kindly. Well, if you're lying to me, (laughs) there's a disconnect there. Really come before the Lord in this. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if you want to look there. It says, brethren, so obviously he's speaking to the church of Galatia and believers. If a man be overtaken in a fault, so here's someone, they're in a sin, they're really struggling. And it's enslaved them. I mean, they're overtaken. I mean, it's just jumped all over them. It's, uh, they try to get out of this pit. I mean, they've got into whatever sin in their life, and they just feel like there is no hope and there's no way out. He says, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself. Let's now also be tempted. So you're looking at yourself uh, in this. You're considering that, you know what, but by the, so as I'm approaching this individual, I'm not coming, as I mentioned on Sunday night, as I was dealing with pornography, and Matthew chapter 5, as it talks about, you know, whosoever looked on a woman to lust after hath committed adultery with her already right in his heart, I said on Sunday night, if someone is struggling, and they come up to you, and they say, listen, I'm struggling. I'm not going to jump all over them. I'm not going to be like, oh, you heathen, I'm going to shun them, no, I'm I'm going to embrace them, I'm going to say, you know what, let's see what God says. You walk with them. God doesn't give us permission to remove splinters from the eyes of others, even in our children, if we're parents, until we've done some lumberjacking, or if you want to say, removing of things from my own life. We can't be used of God to obedience to help others if I'm not obedient in my, in my position. So Moses commands God's leaders that the words of God are to saturate your minds before you attempt to teach others. Let it, when you stand up, when you sit down, when you go, let God's word be the guiding principle in how you orchestrate your life there is this idea that I, I don't want to offend anyone, so I'm not going to say anything. But you do greater risk by not saying something. By not, If someone's going down a wrong path and you don't say anything, then you do greater hurt. There's things in my own family or friends that I know of, an individual, that was going down a wrong path, and because of a seeking to create a peaceful environment, never said anything. But later on, that path proves more difficult. Revelation chapter three, verse 19, "As many as I love, what does Jesus say? I rebuke and chasten." Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. What does Jesus do when you go the wrong way? Does he not convict us? Right? James 1.8, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That instability, that lack of peace in your life, is God trying to say, Hey, wake up! You're going the wrong direction. And sometimes he will put... I had time back when I was in the military, I was doing something, and, and I would have an individual who wasn't a Christian, but they said they would tell me that's not what Christians are supposed to do. And you know what that would really make me mad? I'm like, you're not even a Christian. How dare you tell me what a Christian ought not to do? But they were right. Because I was doing, and the lost people know more sometimes about what a Christian should be and shouldn't be, than the Christian who professes and doesn't live for Christ. Here's another thing. An individual or a believer is a disciple of Jesus Christ who knows God's Word, who is there considering himself, Galatians 6, 1, Matthew chapter 7 is looking and saying, you know what, God, is there any sin in my life? You know what an individual like that that realizes their own, uh, their own depravity, their own sinfulness, their own wickedness of heart, you know what they're going to do when they come up to approach someone? They're not going to be mean-spirited. You're not going to be rude because you understand your position before God as a sinner. You know of your own wicked heart. I know of my sinfulness, So as I approach someone else, and if you're in careful examination of your own heart before you say something, you're wanting to say something not because you want to put the person in their place. You're saying something because you don't want that person to make some decisions that will later on bring about great, great hurt. You're trying to rescue them from the storm of your flesh. We are in a day of autonomy. Don't tell me what to do. And it's permeated even into the churches. But Jesus says, I rebuke. You know what Jesus Christ, as He would deal with even that woman caught in adultery? You know how He would say He said, go and sin no more. He didn't. He he was there with her, but He wasn't all over her. Like, no. No. Not like the Pharisees. I mean, they brought her to him to say, shouldn't we stone her? I mean, it was a trap. But He says, you know, obviously as he says, he who without sin cast the first stone. And he would say, go and sin no more. Don't continue in your sinful ways. You know what, when you realize of your own sinfulness, it helps you to be a lot more kind towards others because you realize, but by the grace of God, I could be there. Scripture must not only be the prescription of rebuke, but it also ought to be the definition of how do I deal with it. And so, we must not just rebuke someone for their outward sin. Let's say drunkenness. We see it a lot in this community. But ultimately, The drunkenness has a deeper problem. We know in Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. There's a heart problem, and there's a heart of unbelief. You're going to a substance rather than going to the source of your help. Look with me at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 20, we're going to read the first 13 verses here, I have just verse 12 up there, but Numbers chapter 20, notice in this situation here of God's rebuke of Moses. And God deals with the nature of the heir of Moses. Numbers chapter 20, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. And we'll read through verse 13. A little bit lengthier passage, but I want you to see how God deals with Moses in his rebuke uh, for Moses' wrong actions. Moses had anger at the people. He was irritated uh, because they're whining again. We don't have water. Verse 1 of Numbers 20. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, to the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there, and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? I mean, they're saying, you've taken the Lord's congregation to bring us into the wilderness to kill us. You're taking God's people, and so they're looking at themselves as we're God's people, and you're the bad man, you're the bad leader, right? That tests your patience. Verse 5, and wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt? to bring us into, unto this evil place. Didn't they forget all the 400 years of slavery? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. I mean, we're going to the place of, you know, milk and honey and, and bountiful, but we're here in the desert and we don't even have water. I mean, we, Moses, you can, you're a horrible leader. You don't even know how to provide for us. Moses, we're thin, we're light, we, you don't, we have nothing. As a leader, your are things like, don't you remember all that God's done? Why don't you keep your mouth shut? Verse 6. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly into the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock. And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore... Ye shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. What did Moses do? Moses harbored his frustration against those who didn't like him. He calls them rebels. He strikes the rock twice. He was told to talk to the rock. It tells us there in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, that that rock is Jesus Christ's. He's a source of refreshing water. He hit the rock twice. That totally ruins the enti- entire illustration, the entire picture. Moses, you hit the rock. God was still gracious to provide for his children, but Moses lost. Moses is angry. You know they've been uh, the Israelites were a whining, complaining people. I mean, they're just like, "We have nothing. We're 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 dying out here. You're not providing for our children. Our children don't have what they need." You know, and the excuses and complaints, they just go on. "We're God's people. We're the, you know, we're the the wonderful people and Moses, you're an awful leader." You know what? That's going to test you. It's kind of like a child saying, "Mom and dad never do this for me." In Acts chapter 17, it tells, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. That's a portion of that verse, but he is our environment. Moses ignored the nature and the ways of God. That God was the sustainer. So when he was rebuked by God, God was very specific. Because you did not see to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. You didn't have, you let your anger rather then my holiness and my instructions be your guide. God gave clear direction what to do. You know what? If a swimmer does not consider the absence of oxygen when they're under the water, they're going to hurt themselves. You're underwater and you're not breathing and your body's using up the oxygen you have in your lungs and if you don't come up at the right time, you're in trouble. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Essentially what God is saying, you you neglect me in two ways. First, you forsake me as the essential component of life. And second of all, you insult me by looking elsewhere for a solution. And much today, even in a lot of this Christian psychology, Christian counseling, it's trying to blend Christ psychology, secular, agnostic, atheistic psychology, blend it with Christianity in a syncretistic way, and blend paganism with Christianity, and somehow find a solution. Why don't we just come to God's Word? The root of the problem is unbelief. In Deuteronomy 9, 23, Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you believed him not, nor hearkened to his voice. What happened? They were told, Moses sends forth twelve spies. Twelve spies go in. They come back. The people are too great, the land is too walled, the defenses are too strong, the grapes are huge, the people are too mighty, they're too numerous, we're too small, we're not trained, and they complain. What is that? That's a, that's a form of it's unbelief, that God doesn't have the solution. I had an individual at the church one time, and they said, I tried reading my Bible and it just doesn't work to help me. Are you kidding me? This book works pretty well if you're willing to listen and you're willing to believe. Deuteronomy 32.20 And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a very frower generation, children in whom is, what? No faith. God reproves the Old Testament Israelites for their lack of faith. They're out of touch with reality. Hebrews 4 2, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. What happened? They didn't believe. Hebrews 3 18, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not, so we see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. Could it very well be that in your life, in my life, I'm not progressing because there's an there's there's areas of my life of unbelief. I'm just not willing to fully trust God that God knows what He's doing. I'm not just going to say, God, you've got the answers, and I need it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I think sometimes, as as a man, you know, we like to fix problems, and I like to find out my solutions for them you know what, my solutions (laughs) aren't always very good. Especially when you're in spiritual things, they don't work very well. But it works pretty well when you know you're doing what God wants you to do. Immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Jesus saves Peter from sinking. Jesus said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? The disciples are panicking in the storm. Matthew 17, 17, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Again, they can't cast out a demon because of unbelief. Then he, Jesus, said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? You know, Jesus is speaking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And... uh, (laughs) You know, they're just not seeing. And he, Abraham, staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham is a model of faith. He believed God. At 99 years of old, finally he believes, in a year, my wife's going to have a baby. Additionally, in faith he was willing to take Isaac as a grown man and put him on the altar to sacrifice him. Why? Because he staggered not at God. He understood it. if he dies, he has to raise him back up. If you know, some, God promises, I'm going to have a child through Sarah, and that child's going to go forward and serve God. The child's going to go forward and be a great lineage, a great people. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is... And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So again, God's hall of faith, chapter Hebrews 11. Without faith. So to be a word-filled disciple, we must have belief that this book works. That if I sit down, or you sit down with someone, and I give them what God says, that it's going to change them. If they're willing to believe what is said. They don't want my words. Sure, I can give them something to make them feel better, but I'm putting a band-aid on a bleeding wound. I'm not going to be a physician to heal it. But God is. and We are unaware of the great realities of God and His ways because Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, we just plain flat out, we don't know His word. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If you have unbelief, you're going to be deceived into sin. You're going to go a wrong direction. This eye that sees the invisible is at the heart of godliness. So God rebukes people for their unbelief. You know what? Unbelief rests at the core of anger depression, covetousness, immorality and other vices in a believer's life because we take our eyes off of God and we begin to look at something else. God's not providing me what I need so I need something else to satisfy me. So when we are working with an individual or you're engaging someone in their life you're not rebuking for the outward sin you've got to get to the heart of unbelief what area in their heart are they not believing god i mean it could be an individual that's moving forward you know i've they're just you know working a lot and, and neglecting god and not spending time with god and well they're putting work as their source of satisfaction rather than god or you can put hobbies or immorality, whatever. I mean, you name the vice, whatever it is, whatever that addiction is. But there's something that is, I'm using this to satisfy me, to provide what I want, rather than saying, I, I just want to trust Him and do what He wants me to do. And I'll end there for this evening. We'll come to our prayer time, our corporate prayer time after. I'll finish this. I'm not going to finish. I don't have time to finish this up tonight. But I want to ask you, in your, as a word-filled disciple, and able to help someone else, does Deuteronomy 6, in your life, the Word of God, how does it filter what you do in your life? How does it dictate how you live your life? How you interact with co-workers and church members and, and society and culture and deal with bad news? And how does it dictate how you do everything you do. Because is it not, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, uh, for reproof, for correction and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. Might have missed a word in there, so forgive me for that. But the truth is, all Scripture, this entire book, God has given to us to help us to know Him better and know how to get through life. I don't need to go to the latest fad. I can stick with that, which is time-tested, proven, and comes from Him who is eternal. And so, as we come to the time of invitation this evening, as a word-filled teacher, are you willing to, first of all, in your own life, before you know coming to someone else, just begin to prayerfully examine your life. You know what, God, what is the sin in my life that maybe I'm overlooking? And, Then if someone obviously does bring something up, then you say, Lord, okay, is that true? Lord, am I wrong in this area? We need to be willing to say, God, I I just want to be closer to you. Life and godliness, all things pertaining to life and godliness, I just want to be close with Him. Why? So that I can also, Him that is spiritual, you can help someone else that's struggling. You can be used of God in a greater and mightier way, but you can't do it if you're not first willing to say, God, I'm going to let this book penetrate my heart and, and mold me in the way that I need to be molded. And So with hands bound and eyes closed this evening, first question I want to ask is, do you know Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Is there ever a time in your life you've professed your faith in Jesus and asked Him to forgive you your sins and be your Savior, trusting in His shed blood, And resurrection for the forgiveness of all your sins. And if you are a Christian, how are you doing in being word-filled? How is your belief or unbelief? Do you really believe that God can help you in the pains and struggles and trials of life? Do you really believe that this book is sufficient? Moses learned the hard way. Aaron learned the hard way. Many others would learn the hard way. I think some of us, we can learn from our own ways. I know myself, I've learned the hard way sometimes. It's a whole lot easier to do it first God's way. So as you're talking with the Lord, I pray that you would just humbly ask Him to help you to live your life in belief rather than unbelief.